Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and Arash Masoudi, our M&A correspondent. From the US, we have a report on the latest banking earnings from Alastair Gray, our US financial correspondent. Our guest today in London is Sandy Chen, the bank's analyst at Sencos, and we'll be talking about RBS as it struggles with a lowered valuation, the use and abuse of league tables by investment banks, and finally a report from the US on those latest third quarter banking earnings. First, though, to RBS. Emma, you've been looking at what the government is planning to do in terms of its valuation of its stake. Still owns getting on for 80% of RBS and has been valued until now at about £21 billion, I think, in the government's accounts. Is planning to cut that by 6 or £7 billion, which is going to be quite a big blow to Philip Hammond's inaugural budget as Chancellor. Tell us about the reasons behind this. The Office for Budget Responsibility is preparing to come out with its revised calculation as to the government's stake and how much it can raise from selling down its 72% holding in the bank. It actually will be the second time in about six months that it's cut its forecast. So in March this year, it reduced it to about £22 billion and it's expected that this will be reduced to about £15 billion based on current share price weakness because obviously a lot of the banks suffered post the Brexit vote in terms of their share price. But for RBS, they've just had so many issues. They've reported eight annual losses since the financial crisis, essentially. They've got a number of problems that they have to deal with over the coming years. So at a recent conference, Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, told a number of journalists on the sidelines that it's unlikely the government will be able to start selling down its stake in RBS until two major issues are resolved. The impending fine from the New York Department of Justice with regards to alleged mis-selling of mortgage-backed securities and also its offloading of Williams & Glynn, the challenger bank that it's been attempting to carve out for the past seven years. Sandy, if I could bring you in there, it's not a particularly happy story. No wonder the government's having to scale back the valuation in its books. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It it hasn't been a happy story. There's been a lot of both uh, internally generated bad news and sort of obvious external factors that are bad news as well. Really, the question is how much of the bad news from the share price perspective is already reflected? And then I think that in terms of what the government wants to do in terms of marking shareholdings to market, that that's really a government decision. Do you think there's any way out, given, as Emma pointed out, it's not just what's gone before, but actually quite a lot of uncertainty, including a potentially huge penalty from the DOJ over mortgage-backed securities, the other headaches that they have to face in terms of restructuring. Is it ever feasible that RBS is a bank in its own right going forward that can be privatised? Or does the government need to look at something a bit more radical, like the ideas of, I don't know, spinning out NatWest as a listed subsidiary or something fresh like that? 
Well, I think the most obvious way out is the path that's been set out by this, well, I guess it's not so new management team by now, which is try to resolve the U.S. RMBS and other type of fines, as well as sell Williams and Glynn, as well as address any other sins of the past in order for RBS to move on. And I think one thing that makes RBS quite different from a lot of the other banks that have had to go down this path is that actually their capital situation is a lot stronger than the capital situations that a lot of the other banks had when they were facing similar crises. So final point, what do you see as potential upside for the rather bombed out share price then? Well, let's say that they do pay fines and resolve issues and effectively take a lot of charges as soon as they can, let's say this year. Now, if you add that up, it could easily add up to, let's say, five billion pounds of loss accumulated in various charges and all that, overwhelming the underlying earnings of RBS. Now, actually, if you look at what the share price is pricing in, it's at half of its tangible book value, which is pricing in a loss much, much larger than that. And so I think it could be argued that if RBS did take it all in the chin and resolve these issues of really past managements, the share price could well move up. That would be a ninth consecutive year of substantial losses, but uh, maybe finally drawing a line. Well, on that vaguely optimistic note, thank you, Sandy, for your thoughts on RBS. So let's move on to our second story of the day. Caroline, you've been looking at the UK regulators' pronouncement of various things to do with investment banking, particularly the use of league tables. Now, this is obviously a British take on something that's very much an international phenomenon, the use of league tables by investment banks to kind of pitch for M&A business in particular. Tell us exactly what the FCA has said. The Financial Conduct Authority had undertaken about an 18-month inquiry, a market study into wholesale and corporate banking. There was a lot of gnashing of teeth at the time, back in 2015, that this might herald the end of universal banking, so-called. But actually, the findings today are relatively limited. As you say, the FCA has alighted on the use of league tables, particularly as investment banks use to pitch to clients. And it said that it wants to clamp down on misrepresentation and league table inflation Also, the fact that lenders sometimes take on loss-making trades as a way of climbing up the rankings in these league tables. But I think some of the more sort of substantive findings that they've made are more around restrictive contractual clauses, which basically means that if a lender has a particular client, it says, "Okay, well, we'll advise on your IPO, we'll underwrite or whatever but you have to use us for other services or vice versa. If we're giving you a loan, then we would expect to be instructed on your IPO. So the FCA wants to ban these so-called restrictive clauses. The other thing that it was slightly concerned about was in the IPO process, conflicts of interest. For instance, whilst there is a duty to your client that is the issuing company, Banks obviously have a lot of clients on the buy side as well. And actually, those clients are a lot more valuable because there's a lot of other revenue that's generated by them. For instance, most IPOs they found are underpriced on average. So the shares are offered at a discount initially to the level that they eventually trade at. And that obviously benefits these investors who are also very lucrative clients. Okay, so they're going after certain areas, as is their 
won't really across consumer industries as well, trying to unbundle stuff that the institutions are trying to wrap up together. Absolutely. So they went into this market study, which they can only do with their relatively new competition powers, looking at bundling, which is a very typical issue that antitrust regulators look at. I should point out that there are two other parallel market studies that the FCA has in the pipeline right now, which I understand will be far more wide ranging than those published today. And that is a wider study looking at IPOs. And we had some initial findings in April that were really quite stark in their findings in terms of the conflicts of interest that are rife within the IPO market, and also the asymmetries of information that are out there. And then the second market study that they've got that again, hopefully will be published by the end of the year is into asset management. Okay, we'll watch out for those. But in the meantime, Arash, if I could bring you in here, how will the industry take these findings? I mean, is it going to be hugely disruptive? I think the investment banking industry will largely shrug this off and say, well, this is the way we do business. And um, from my perspective, just covering the markets, this sort of stuff has existed for decades. So it's interesting that the FCA has finally decided it's an issue uh, and taken action. League tables are often openly criticized, and I don't know to what extent people genuinely use them to make decisions about who they're going to use in terms of investment banking. The issue really came to London, I think, in the early 1990s when Goldman Sachs began to point to its role as the number one M&A advisor to sort of say, we're the best at doing this. And it sort of became a marketing tool for Goldman. And then everyone quickly began playing the game as well. And how exactly does this get manipulated? I mean, there are third-party leak tables, which presumably will put different banks in different positions. How can you manipulate them? Well, I wouldn't want to insinuate anything too, too obvious, but uh, those companies are businesses, and those are their clients, and to listen to their clients may be beneficial to their business. And frankly, those companies like Deologic and Thomson Reuters, who do these ratings, one is owned by a private equity company, the other is a financial information provider which deals heavily with the banks. So there's an inherent conflict of interest from where they are because they're not objective gatherers of the information. So to the extent side deals are made, I mean, I can think of one extremely large transaction last year where a major London bank was left off and threatened to sue the company because it had an engagement letter. And this deal fundamentally, if they were on it or not on an an M&A basis, would have moved them significantly up the rankings. And they successfully got added to the deal in the final weeks of its closing. And they'd received maybe a very small amount of money for it. Just let me bring Caroline back in on that. So these types of conflicts of interest, will they be addressed, Caroline, by what the FCA has said? I think the answer to that is partially. If you look through the responses to the FCA's initial inquiries, you see that banks as Arish alluded to, have sort of said that league tables aren't really used credibly in client pitches. And actually, whilst contractual clauses, restrictive clauses are used, they're not really enforced. So I think there is quite a lot of ground there that the FCA can cover. But it's whether, again, there's much appetite for real reform on the ground. We shall see. Thank you very much both for that. Let's move to our third topic. Alistair Gray is on the line, our US financial services correspondent. Alistair, thanks very much for joining us. We're going to look back at what the Wall Street banks have done in their third quarters. Goldman Sachs is the latest with numbers out on Tuesday. Pretty impressive performance all around. Yeah, it's another very good number from Goldman Sachs, echoing very good results from B of A, City, JP in recent days. And once again, it's all about trading, and fixing concurrencies and commodities, which is a really important driver of profits 
and the numbers are a lot strongly for the third quarter. We are slightly guilty, <laughs> as many people are, of uh, perhaps reading too much into the quarterly numbers. And in fact, if you look at the, the nine-month period overall, profits at Goldman are essentially flat. You know, the third quarter this year was very good, but the first quarter was very bad for them. But then again, the first quarter of the previous year was good for Goldman. So it sort of depends on what you're comparing. Yes. And in terms of if you're looking at return on equity, I think they went back above 11% in the third quarter. But averaging out, as you say, across nine months, I'm guessing it would be significantly lower in that kind of 5 to 8% range, which most banks seem to find as the new normal these days. Yeah, but I mean, that's important. You know, the numbers are all going in the right direction. I think that the big question really is whether it's sustainable. And there's some reasons to think that it might be, but there's plenty of reasons to think that it's not. So let's run through one or two on both sides. What reasons are there to be optimistic? Well, there's things that this could continue in the fourth quarter. I mean, look, what's driven the big trading improvements in the third quarter? It's quite complex. People in Wall Street talk about the right kinds of volatility. You want the orders coming through, but you don't want so much volatility in markets going haywire that people are paralyzed. And in the course that's just gone, you know, it was the right kind of volatility. People were repositioning for Brexit and that helped with currencies. And you had the possibility as well of frequently changing expectations for the Fed and central banks around the world are going to do with interest rates. So that's, again, helped volumes. There's very early signs that similar phenomena are at play in the fourth quarter, but it's quite early days for that. Another big question is whether, or to what extent, the US banks profiting from the trails of their rivals in Europe, and particularly Deutsche. So we'll get a good sense of that with the numbers from the European banks that are due out in the coming weeks. Yes, they should be out over the next few weeks gradually. But I suppose the reason to be less optimistic would be that stealing market share from the Europeans is a one-off phenomenon, which could actually reverse. And then we've got all of those macro headwinds to worry about, particularly in Europe. But the uncertainty around the Fed and so on, macro policy could, as you say, go either way in terms of whether the volatility turns out to be the right kind or the wrong kind. And the structural challenges for the sector, the toughened regulations, well, they haven't gone away. The shift onto electronic platforms, that's not going away. And at the same time, for the big megabanks that also have consumer arms, they're still struggling with the rock-bottom interest rate environment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you say, this is only one quarter, but at least it's something of a relief for bank investors for this quarter, if nothing else. Thank you, Alistair, for joining us. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Emma, Caroline and Arash here in the studio. Also our guest, Sandy Chen from Senkos and Alistair Gray, our US financial correspondent from New York. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams 
who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.